Good morning. Please join me for this morning's scripture reading by turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll be in verse 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and by the, in the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He who is joined to the Lord will become one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, which I hope you do, uh, get to that, that section, First Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be looking at those, those verses in our time together. Uh, next week is a family service, and so we'll be pausing our 1 Corinthians study because we are in this stretch of 1 Corinthians that deals with a lot of uh, mature subjects, and so I don't want parents running for the hills on Thanksgiving weekend. We're going to be in John 6, looking at the bread of life. And so uh, we will pick it up in uh, the first couple Sundays in December in chapter 7. Again, parents, I encourage you to read that chapter, read that chapter before we get there, and then we'll be talking Christmas later in the month. Who is the master of your life? Who calls the shots? Who runs the show? Who leads your life? Who is the authority in and over your life? If you're claiming to follow and trust in Jesus, then you and I are claiming that Jesus is that authority. He is the leader, the Lord of our lives. That's what disciples have, have done since the Gospels. They have declared with their lips and with their lives we're following Jesus. We, we trust in, in Him as the Savior of our souls, as the shepherd of our lives. Loved ones, the Lord Jesus is after your heart and my heart. Jesus tells us in Luke 6 that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs 4.23 says, Guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of your life. Out of it flows all of life. And so the Lord Jesus this morning is after our hearts, not simply our actions. For out of our hearts flow actions and our way of life. Before I trusted in Jesus and surrendered my life to him, do you know who called the shots in my life? Ultimately, it was me. I sat in the position of authority. C.S. Lewis wrote this about his pre-conversion self before he trusted in Christ. And I think if we're honest, we can relate really well to his words. He writes, But of course what mattered most of all was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendent interferer. If its picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's soul, truly there, least of all, 
which, could, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted, some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me to be a transcendent interfere. I love that. I love that. Jesus, the eternal one, interfering not to kill our joy, but actually to give us abundant joy, to rescue us from our slavery of sin and the flesh and set us free, to redeem us from what we thought brought us joy, but was actually killing us. And instead, faithfully leading us into life. And knowing who Jesus is then, as C.S. Lewis writes, there was no region, even in the innermost depths of one's soul, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice of no admittance. No area, even a small one, of which we as believers can say, this is my business and mine only. Before I came to faith in Christ, I had areas of my life where I had, in a sense, a barbed wire fence saying, no entrance, my business, mine only. And early on, after I trusted in Jesus, I sadly was setting up the same type of barbed wire fencing, trying to silo my life where Jesus could be Lord over this one, for instance, my eternity, but then this one over here, I could be Lord over this. It's completely counter to what it means to actually follow Jesus according to the Scriptures. And one of those areas that I was prone to section off or try to uh, barbed wire off was that of sexuality. For a variety of reasons, whether it was shame or condemnation or my own fleshly desires, I was prone to, like C.S. Lewis, see Jesus as the transcendent interferer. When in fact, as I grew in my faith, I came to realize that his interference was for my good and for my freedom and for the good and joy of those around me. And that actually, deeper, more satisfying joy was found in wholeheartedly trusting in His loving authority in my life. Loved ones, as we look at this passage, be reminded Jesus is after our hearts. So may we welcome His true and timeless nature of His Word, which is for our good and freedom. The Apostle Paul, who planted this church, is writing to the Corinthians who had started to follow the patterns of the city rather than the patterns of Christ. They have incorrectly started to think as it relates to sexuality, this is my business and mine only. And Paul is calling them back to who they are in Jesus, calling them to repent, to trust in Jesus and his good design and his word for them. Verses 12 through 14 in the CSB translation again, everything is permissible for me but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for the food. And God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So Paul takes two phrases that are common in the city of Corinth and yet sadly had become common in the church. And the church is twisting or distorting these phrases to justify their sinful conduct and immorality. The two phrases from the pagan city are these, everything is permissible for me and food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. Let's first talk, the first, uh, let's first talk that first one, everything is permissible for me. 
There's truth to that statement, but not the whole truth. We are free in Christ. The Christ follower has been liberated from, set free from bondage. The Exodus freedom story in the Old Testament points forward to our story as new covenant believers. We're no longer under the law of Moses. So, for example, we're not restricted by dietary laws. So the Gentile believers in Corinth didn't first need to become Jews or follow the law of Moses in order to please the Lord. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly, and we are saved by grace and through faith alone, not by works, such as following dietary laws. So the Corinthians were right that they were free in Christ and thus not bound by a legalistic religion. And yet they were then twisting that truth to say, well, we're, we're free to still live for self and sin. We can silo, we can separate our lives, and Jesus can be Lord over this one, and then I'll be Lord over this one. This is my business, mine only. This is the Lord's business. And we section that off. Everything is permissible for me. So, so sure, we can, live, we can still live, for example, sexually immoral lives. Paul wrote this in Romans 6, 1 and 2. Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not, he writes. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's not our new creation in Christ. Nature. Romans 6.15, should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not, he writes. The grace of God is not licensed to continue in sin. It's the very reason we can turn from sin and live in a new way. Romans 5-8 through 8 would be a great passage of, of Scripture to dwell on this week, reminding us of those, of those realities. So Paul gives two responses to remind the Corinthians of the whole truth not just half of it. Everything is permissible for me, but, he writes, not everything is beneficial, and I won't be mastered by anything. And so Paul is saying, yes, you're free in Christ, but don't think that you're not potentially still faced with the temptation to turn toward slavery again, to turn back toward Egypt. Whether that slavery is that of a legalistic man-based religion or that of a sin-centered man-based licentiousness meaning grace, you're using grace as a license to continue in sin. We serve only one master. His name is Jesus, and he is infinitely good for us and for forever for us. And if we ever doubt that, we look at the gospel, we look at the cross and say, he is for us to endure that. See, as believers, in order to walk in God-glorifying and wise Christian freedom, we must never forget who the owner is of our lives. It's not us. We're seeking to bring Him glory and not us. When we begin to drift toward this self-authority, we will notoriously move toward either the bondage of legalism or this bondage of licentiousness. Loved ones, what is in your life that might be permissible but isn't beneficial to your soul? What's in your life right now that is seeking to master and dominate, and control your life. There's a multitude of examples, well beyond sexual immorality. But these things, whether they be attitudes, actions, habits, substances, even other people, they notoriously dull our affections for the Lord. They notoriously dull our sensitivity to the Spirit. They notoriously are the places we run to when we are 
stressed, when we are tired, when we are bored, when we want to return to our flesh. On the surface, and maybe even compared to those around us, they might even appear as if no big deal. But ultimately, if we're listening to the Spirit, they're detrimental to our communion with Jesus, to our enjoyment of Him, because we're turning to these lesser things to try to find our enjoyment. We've been called to freedom in Him. The second phrase that the church had picked up from the city and began to follow was this, food is for the stomach and stomach for the food. The Corinthians employed these, these words to mean that sexual pleasure was, was meant to be enjoyed just as food was meant to be eaten. So well my body wants to eat, so I eat. My body wants to engage in sex, so I engage in sexual immorality. What's the problem? They're seeking to reduce sex to a physical act as natural as eating food. To which Paul says, God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. One commentary said this, that God will destroy both food and the stomach does not necessarily imply that food and stomachs will not exist in the new heavens and new earth. Paul probably meant that God would destroy stomachs and food as they are now recognized and experienced. What Paul is, is doing is trying to draw a clear distinction that sexual immorality can't be justified as well. This is just a natural biological practice equivalent to eating food. What we do with our bodies in regards to food does not affect us the same way as what we do with our bodies in regards to sex. The body of a believer is no longer for the things of our old creation, such as sexual immorality. The, the redeemed body is now set aside for, sanctified for the Lord, intended now for, for service and worship of the Lord Jesus. Paul wrote this in Romans 12.1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship, he writes. And as we worship the Lord with the whole of our lives, we at the same time reject conforming to the patterns of this world. And one clear pattern of the world is trying to reduce sexual immorality to simply physical acts, the equivalent of moving a fork or spoon to your mouth. And we see that such a pattern is not new in our day and age. It's been around since Genesis 3. It wasn't invented in the past eight to ten years in our nation. It's been around since Genesis 3 and the fall of man. Since sin entered the world and people exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what had been created instead of their creator. That's Romans 1. It's more in our face nowadays because of the nature of our digital media and digital age. But the human heart has always been the human heart always in desperate need of God's transforming truth and grace. Sexual immorality meaning trying to find your satisfaction and pleasure outside the boundaries of a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. So that's all of it. It covers all of it. Lust in our hearts, porn, homosexuality, sex outside of marriage, 
when we're trying to find our satisfaction, our gratification outside the bounds of a husband and wife covenant marriage, we are stepping into the realm of sexual immorality. See, one pattern of the world is trying to reduce humanity down, to diminish humanity, to make humanity think that they're not made in the image and likeness of our triune God. So as it relates to babies in the uterus, they want to reduce that simply to a lump of cells. As it relates to sexual immorality, they want to reduce humanity to simply being a bunch of flesh-ruled animals that must follow every instinct, every temptation, every desire. That real satisfaction is found in a land with no parameters, boundaries. It's ruled by self. If you want to eat, eat. If you want to find sexual pleasure, go get it. Whatever means necessary. So then we end up objectifying people who have been made in the image and likeness of our God. To which Paul's pushing back saying, no, life has value because you've been made in the image and likeness of our triune God. And we look at the cross and Jesus laying down his life for the ungodly, you and me, and we say life has value. Your life has worth. He died so that you might live. And to the brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul is exhorting us, you now belong to the Lord. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and is empowering you to worship Him as a way of life, to reject the patterns and lies of the world, and to be transformed by His grace and love. And one day, when this life is over, you'll be raised to eternal life. Our bodies have tremendous value. And they cannot be treated casually because they matter eternally. So brothers and sisters, live as citizens of heaven now. Live as citizens now. Live as worshipers of Jesus now. Paul goes on, verses 15 through 17. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take part of Christ's body? And make it part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For Scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So Paul is doubling down on reminding the Corinthians of their new identity in him or in Jesus. That your bodies are a part of Christ's body intimately joined to, to Jesus so that Paul makes this illustration here and later in this letter that that our bodies are, are active, hands and feet of ultimately Christ's body, and he's the head of, of the body. So knowing that is who we are, Paul poses a question similar to how he did in Romans 6 with an obvious answer. So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of, of a prostitute? The answer, of course, absolutely not. In that day, prostitution was much more culturally acceptable than it is today. So the incest relationship from chapter 6 or chapter 5 wasn't the only thing happening in this church. Some in the church were trying to justify their use of prostitutes. And Paul is saying bodies of believers are valuable because they already are a part of the Lord Jesus. The significance is not only eternal, but, but in the present. Brothers and sisters, you're a part of Jesus' body now. Not just in eternity, but now, November 20, 22. 
You're part of his body now. The Corinthians are trying to silo and separate their life into sections. Some might call it compartmentalized worship. Wrongly thinking that our lives over here don't have any connection to over here. And so this can be my business, mine only. This can be the Lord's. This can be someone else's. And so as it relates to sex, tragically thinking, well, that's just something I do with my, with my body. It doesn't affect my heart and soul, but loved ones, it does. That's what Paul's trying to communicate here. We need to see ourselves as the Lord sees us, holistic worshipers seeking to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So as it relates to prostitution or any sort of sexual immorality, Paul is saying it's not simply a business transaction. There's no such thing as casual sex. It's a lie from the devil. It's a lie from our own flesh. It's a lie from the world that has the singular desire of entangling our souls. As one author put it, nobody can go to bed with someone and leave your soul parked outside. You can't leave your soul disconnected from who you are. And then Paul brings us back to Genesis 2, reminding us of the Lord's design for marriage. For Scripture says the two will become one flesh. In the marriage of a husband and wife, the two become one flesh, and sex is a gift created and given to us by the Lord that is to be enjoyed in the context of that one flesh covenant marriage. We'll talk more about that on December 4th. So from a biblical perspective, Paul is trying to help us see that sexual relations outside the bounds of marriage create a, a flesh, a, f- a union of flesh between the participants. It entangles. We're giving ourselves away to someone who is not the Lord and who is not our spouse in marriage. Earthly marriage is a picture of the spiritual union that we have in Jesus and how we, as the church, the bride of Christ is his bride. He is the bridegroom making us holy, made us holy, making us holy in him. Verse 17 again, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. The word joined there in a literal sense means glue. So Paul is trying to help us see how believers' lives are joined, fused, stuck to the Lord. So when we are tempted to give way to the flesh, the Lord is with you. He's with you. If you're a Christ follower, Jesus doesn't sit in the corner with his head to the corner when we give way to the flesh. He is with you. We are in him. Paul wants us to see how intertwined, connected, and not compartmentalized a believer's life is with the Lord. Paul continues to remind us who we are in Jesus as a result, verse 18 then, flee sexual immorality. The command is straightforward and direct. There's a sense of urgency, an ongoing nature to this command. Make it your habit to flee sexual immorality. Make it your pattern to flee, trying to find your satisfaction, your acceptance, your gratification, your very identity in that of sexual immorality. Genesis 39 recounts a story of Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife. It gives us a good sense of what urgency looks like and how it responds. So Genesis 39, 6-12 says this, Potiphar, he left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. So Potiphar was a captain of Pharaoh's guard. 
going on. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate because he'd entrusted Joseph with all of that. Now Joseph, it says, was well-built and handsome. After some time, his master's wife looked longingly at Joseph and said, sleep with me. But he refused. Look, he said to his master's wife, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in his house, and he has put all that he owns under my authority. No one in this house is greater than I am. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. So how could I do this immense evil and how could I sin against God? Although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her. Now one day he went into the house to do his work and none of the household servants were there. She grabbed him by his garment and said, sleep with me. But leaving his garment in her hand, he escaped and ran outside. The command to flee means a radical and decisive separation. Joseph had made that decision long before that encounter took place. He wasn't trying to make that up on the fly because that's where flesh tends to lead us. I'll just make that up in the moment. No, you won't. Come on. Our flesh will rule us. He'd made that decision long before. So we're not going to toy around with it. We're taking off from it because we know our flesh is weak and we know we've been joined to the Lord, glued to Him in the Spirit for all eternity. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price so glorify God with your body. What does the phrase sins against his own body mean? The Spirit through Paul is saying when it comes to sexual sin, it has a unique effect upon our lives, often in ways that other sins do not. He's not saying that other sins such as drunkenness or gluttony or pick your example doesn't affect or hurt our body. He is saying that sexual immorality is unique in how it entangles our spirits. As one author wrote, no other sin like sexual immorality threatens so much to put the body under the mastery of something or someone else. And many of us know that from experience, from our old creation days. For a believer to pursue sexual, immor sexual immorality is, in a sense, to take what doesn't belong to you, your body, and give it to someone or something else other than wholehearted worship of Jesus. Think of it in terms of renting or owning a home. If you're renting, you're not watching HDTV saying, all right, open concept. We're taking out every wall, beams everywhere, everything's gray, white, black. Here we go, right? Because you're renting. You're not owning the place. You're living in a way that the owner's called you to live. You're also not throwing a sign in the yard saying, I'm going to go ahead and give this house to somebody else. Why? Because it's not your house. You're renting it. It's not within your lease terms to go ahead and give the house to another party. The rights of ownership belong to someone else. And listen, in spiritual terms, we want it that way. We want it that way. Because we could all probably point to our testimony and say, when we were the owners, 
we made an utter mess of the place. When we were the ones calling the shots, we destroyed the place. We either were buried in the rubbish of shame and condemnation or we were buried in the rubbish and the garbage of self-righteousness and pride. To continue and think of, think of it in terms of dwellings and who's the owner, then in verse 19, Paul reminds us that, that the Christian's body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. One author wrote, Our bodies are the place where God has chosen to live and the very thing He has chosen to make a part of Himself. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you're a living temple of the Spirit of God. Live in a way that pleases the Spirit and brings glory to the owner of the bodies. The owner who willingly laid down his life so that we could be redeemed from the auction block, redeemed from the slavery of our sin and no longer be called children of wrath, but children of God. Heirs. In high school, we had an assembly, I believe it was my senior year, where the speaker suggested, and this she was not being um, funny, that to avoid sex, we should turn to a Snickers bar because it, what? Satisfies. You got an urge? Eat a Snickers bar. That was the counsel, no lie. Had I listened to that counsel, even with a killer metabolism, I would have been 600 pounds. It's absurd. It's trying to give you an external solution to an internal problem. We do this all the time. This is what the law tries to do. It's an absurd suggestion to give an external solution to an internal heart issue. Remember, Jesus is after our hearts, for out of them flows all of life. I hope you're seeing that in the midst of this really clear command of flee sexual immorality, the lengths at which Paul has gone to communicate who believers are in Christ. We're given not a legalistic, external motivation to get us to flee, but rather we're given the gospel of God's grace, an internal motivation, reminding us of who we are in Him, reminding us because the gospel changes us from the inside out. It changes our hearts the gospel reorients our, our hearts toward the worship of our Creator and away from created things. So we're going to reject the lie. Jesus died for the lie. We're going to turn toward the truth. Paul finishes, you are not your own, for you are bought at a price. In a gathering this size, here's what I know, that sexual, immor sexual immorality has occurred in many, if not most, of our lives. Some of you are actively giving yourself away to someone who is not your husband or wife in the context of marriage, whether in thought or in deed or both. Some of you are filled with shame thinking of your past, even if it's not your present day reality. Some of you have been sinned against, possibly abused in tragic ways. Some of you are facing temptation in some way and you're battling whether or not to flee from it. You're kind of lingering, kind of toying with it. Brothers and sisters, you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. The gospel of God's grace is good news for you and I this morning and this week and in the years ahead. Our identity is not found in this world 
or what the world thinks of us or how the world wants to identify us. It's not found in our past sin or our shame, what we've done or what has been done to us. As gospel people, our identity is found solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Stephen Um writes this, Jesus, the great lover who despite our spotty pasts and fickle hearts, whose love we spurned and whose heart we broke, didn't just bid at the auction to get the love of his life back, but gave all, body and soul, to have us as his own once more. And when we lift our heads and look at the cross, we know for sure that he's not out for revenge because we're greeted not by indignation, but by a kind smile and a warm embrace that says, I love you more than you'll ever know. Let's go home. 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25, speaking of the price that Jesus paid, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray, but you've now returned. You've gone home to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Lord Jesus, thank you for being our good and chief shepherd. Thank you for rejoicing at our repentance. Thank you that you're making all things new. You make streams through the desert and beauty from ashes. Your wounds have healed us and continue to heal us. Thank you for giving all of you for our salvation and our freedom. Thank you that we can turn from making bricks in the mud and enjoy abundant life in you. Thank you that while sexual sin is sin, it is not unforgivable. And you're faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Help us as fellow temples of your spirit to walk in the light with one another, to encourage one another to flee from sexual immorality. Help us remind one another of who we are in you and that there's no part of our hearts or lives that we can declare as strictly our business. You're the owner. We belong to you. You're the Lord over us and for us, and for that we are grateful. May we worship you wholeheartedly with all of our lives and all of our bodies. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. What good truth to sing to one another and sing to our own hearts this morning. Second Peter 2, 22 says, Flee from youthful passions, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We flee and we pursue together as the people of God, not as individuals off fighting our own battles. We've been called toward one another to flee together and to pursue alongside one another as brothers and sisters. So I encourage you to take a step toward community, whether it relates to sexual immorality or something else but we pursue the Lord together as the people of God because He is our cornerstone. And He's made us a people, a new creation people in Him.